Well, amen. Amen. Welcome in, man. Welcome to Lindsay Lane North. Welcome to our 1030 service. It's great to have every one of you here as we begin a new series. Hopefully when you came in today, uh, hopefully you saw the, uh, the change of poster. Uh, we are in the book of Mark. So you can turn there. All right, the book of Mark, uh, we are going to be in three months in this year. We will be in the book of Mark. We will complete our study. Uh, this is something that we are doing with all three campuses, uh, going through God's Word, reading through the synoptic gospel uh, of Mark, and we are pulling out what, what God has for us through His Word. Obviously, it's not pure exegesis. Uh, that will be uh, our, our expository preaching because that would take a great deal longer. But uh, for the next eight months, or excuse me, uh, for the next month, we will be in the first eight chapters of the book of Mark. Now, I'm going to tell you something that you probably don't think is too crazy hearing me say this, but it may be extremely crazy for you. Uh, there has never been a time in my life that I can recall, maybe there has been and I just don't remember it, that I can recall where I have thought, man, I just need to get alone. I need to get away from everybody. I need to get alone and I need to just collect my thoughts and just be by myself. Now, I am also one of the most extroverted human beings alive. Uh, I know that some of you in this room, as people started filing in, you were like, man, I wish I could just get away. I wish I could just get alone, right? Uh, I know some of you may be thinking that right now. My, my wife is one of those, like she's more introverted. Uh, but I just, I've never... I've never met a crowd that I didn't want to be a part of. I, I love, I draw energy off of crowds. When our home groups meet uh, in the midweek, uh, I was telling somebody just this past week that I am more awake and more invigorated for ministry and, and, and ready to go after the, the home group than I am before it, right? I'm, I'm a home alone with our family, and then all, everybody comes in, and we get to have a conversation about things that matter. We get to talk about where we are in Christ. We get to talk about things that we can better our church with, and man, it is, it's an exciting time for me, and there just has never been a time in my life uh, that I have wanted to get alone. I get energy from crowds. It's just how God wired me. As weird as that may sound to you, that's how God wired me. In the first eight, uh, and I keep saying books and I need to say chapters, in the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, we see Jesus ministering to crowds, specifically Jewish crowds, crowds in a region called Galilee. His Galilean ministry happens for the first eight chapters of the book of Mark. And Jesus does a remarkable job drawing a crowd. He brings the multitudes to him. And so we're going to talk about that this time. Now, in a few months, we'll talk about his ministry, the disciples. There's a little small two and a half to three chapter window there where he begins to, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> He begins to really invest in his disciples, and then after that, he begins to focus his attention globally on all nations. 
And so we'll get there, but for this month, we're going to talk about this Galilean ministry, this ministry to the multitude that Jesus has. And what we see here is kind of an encapsulation of all eight chapters is this idea that Jesus calls the multitudes. Jesus calls the multitude. I want you to understand in here today that my desire is for you In your seats here, a part of this gathering, a part of this crowd, I don't want you to leave this place without feeling a very intentional call to obedience. Jesus called the crowds. He he made an all call. He called the crowds in the presence in a very corporate setting, but he called them to a very intimate and a very intentional relationship. But let's look at this crowd. How did Jesus accumulate this crowd together? Number one, we see he had reputation. Mark 1 tells us that he had incredible reputation. And so what we'll read here is that Christ's fame produced fans. The fame of Jesus, the spectacle that was Jesus and the things that he was doing in Galilee drew a significant number of people. They just wanted to see what would happen. You ever done something or been somewhere and you weren't sure how it's going to turn out? You just wanted to be there to see how it all went down? This is what was happening. And people were coming from all over to witness what Jesus was teaching And what Jesus was doing, the miracles he was performing. So let's look at that teaching. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Beginning in verse 21, we see the first uh, real teaching that we see of Jesus in Galilee. Listen to what it says in verse 21 and 22. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Well, that's odd because normal people... Don't just go into the church and begin to preach, right? I would find it odd. Others would probably find it odd. If this is your first time here, you just took a step up to the pulpit and began to preach, right? That would be considered odd. And in Jesus' day, it was no less odd. He was in the synagogue and he began to teach. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. You see, you must understand when we read this text of Scripture, we read it with very Western civilization, very 21st century lenses. we got to put ourselves in the minds of the readers, the mind of the original audience, as they're hearing these words, right? Jesus, for Jesus to come up and to begin teaching, but not just to be teaching, but to be teaching as one who has the word there is ruling authority. The one that has ruling authority over scripture. What does it mean? He's not just preaching God's word. He's not just preaching the Old Testament. He begins to add to the word. That literally, and we know that because we have the New Testament, right? Jesus' words in the gospels, we see his words and his words have become part of the canon of scripture. This was groundbreaking stuff for them at that day. You see the scribes, the people held very closely to God's word. In those days, so much so there was there was an entire 
way of life that was built around it. The scribes, their whole job was to print, was to copy God's word. But not just God's word, not just the Tanakh, not just the first 39 books. It was the American canon, right? Not just the text of the Old Testament, but they were also to copy all of the Talmud, the teachings of those days. Now, that was the one, the Talmud was the one that Jesus had a problem with every now and then, right? But they would copy the Talmud. This is all of the interpretation from all these rabbis of all this, of all this text of Scripture. Not only that, but they would also have to transcribe, they would have to write down, as their name implies, all of the commentary from all of the main rabbis from all over the place, right? Well, the rabbi so-and-so says this. Well, rabbi so-and-so says this, right? And they were intimately aware. And when I say they were intimately acquainted with these words, they had memorized them. Many of the scribes had memorized the entire canon of the Old Testament of Scripture. They had memorized the entire Talmud, all uh, all of the teachings and all the side teachings that that supported and many of the commentaries of the rabbis of that day, right? They, these were students of God's word and things of God. And so when you came to a scribe, they couldn't say, well, I think God's word means this. They literally could only say what they had memorized. So if you're talking to them and you're trying to seek wisdom from them, the only thing a, a scribe was permitted to do was to give you an exact text of Scripture, right, address and everything, of where to find your answer. Hey, you need to look at Jeremiah 33, 30, verse 30. You know, like whatever the case was, you would come to them and they could, they could respond with what God's Word said or they could tell you what a rabbi said. Now, a rabbi was basically an ordained scribe. It was another level of spiritual understanding. If you were a scribe and you were to follow after a rabbi, you would, if that rabbi would accept you under their tutelage, they would follow you, they, you would follow them around. And at some point, you would learn from them, you would talk to them, you would do life with them. And at some point, they would sign off on you being a rabbi with Simica. It was authority that you gave you a certain amount of authority the word literally means to be leaned on and so not just exactly what God's word said or exactly what a teaching was but this is kind of how you got away with interpretation you could interpret some of these things you could you could lean one way or another now there were very few people that actually became rabbis because of this extensive work but this was the process but when it talks about Jesus He's not just reading scripture. He's not just giving his interpretation as a rabbi. The word that is used there, right, when it says that he taught as one who had authority, the word is ruling authority. It's exousia. It is, an ex it is a great abounding ruling over the text. Here's what's happening. The text of God's word was not finished. As Jesus opened his mouth, God's word poured forth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? John 1, 14. He came to earth and he began to teach and they had never heard it. You've heard it said, the Sermon on the Mount, but I say unto you, 
placing his teaching on equal ground with the Old Testament. It was unprecedented in his days. And so as a result, we don't know how this is going to go. Surely this is going to raise some eyebrows. Surely this is going to ruffle some feathers. Let's go see what Jesus says next. See what crazy thing he says next. And let's see how the people respond to it. He was drawing a crowd. That's not the only time he taught. In the first three chapters of the book of Mark, we see that he also taught throughout Galilee and synagogues. This was what he did at Capernaum. He did other places throughout Galilee. He taught at the back, uh, uh, he taught back in Capernaum in a home. In a home, he would preach. He would go to these homes and he would, he would eat and, and, and stay there and he would teach. People would come to him and he would teach there. He taught on keeping company with sinners. In the first three books of the book of Mark, first three chapters of the book of Mark, he taught on fasting. He taught on Sabbath. On, on, on te- he started teaching on the Sabbath. Listen, for Jesus to say the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, was revolutionary in Jesus' day. Now we look at it and go, yeah, that's what Jesus said. This was unfolding before their very eyes, and it was making Jesus famous but he was doing something else. Look at Mark 1, 23 through 28. Gives us an example of this thing that that he was also doing. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. He healed a demon-possessed man in the presence of all of these people. Can you imagine what that scene looked like? But that's not the only healing in the first three chapters of the book of Mark. We also see that in Capernaum, he healed Simon's mother-in-law. The Bible says they all showed up at Simon's house and his mom was sick. His mother-in-law was sick. Well, they were hungry, and instead of ordering in pizza, Jesus went to the bedroom, healed his mother-in-law, and she cooked for him. Read it. It's in there, right? And so he healed her, and she began to take care of him. Many healed. Many were healed at Simon's house that day and and, 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 uh, the next. Many came and were healed. He was casting out demons. He cleansed a leper, something that had never been done, something that only the Messiah could do. Only the Messiah could touch what was dirty and make it clean. Otherwise, there was a ceremonial cleansing, and leprosy was, leprosy was one of those things, once you're dirty with leprosy, you're never clean. The first recorded historical cleansing of a leper, we don't find until the life of Jesus. So Levitical law tells us how to cleanse a leper, how to restore a leper, but that never happened until Jesus showed up. He cleansed the leper. He healed a paralyzed man. This is the story of the four men uh, lowering down from the roof. He healed a man with a withered hand, that his hand was withered and he was restored when he reached it out, right? And so all of these miracles were happening. And let me just tell you guys, 
They didn't live in a mythical location, right? They didn't live in a crazy backwards land. If you start teaching things that nobody's heard before and you start healing folks, you're going to get famous. You will gather a crowd. You will probably have a TV show, right? And this is what we see with Jesus. Jesus had begun accumulating an incredible amount of fans. We're not going to read it, but it is in your notes. The Mark, uh, Mark 3 tells us that there was a time that Jesus retreated and got away tried to get away from the people and tried to get in a boat because he was afraid that they would crush him. He, these people are going to keep pushing in on me and every time they touch me, they're healed, so they keep trying to push in and touch me and they're going to crush me, right? His fame had spread all over the place. You see, he had accumulated a following. He had accumulated fans. I remember I was driving to work one day, or driving from work, and I remember listening to sports radio because I'm dumb and that's what I listen to, all right? So judge me if you want, all right? Uh, number one is 88.1, but it is usually number two, which is 103.9, uh, and that's sports radio. And so I was listening to sports radio, and I'll never forget when they started talking about the minor league team that was coming to Huntsville. What should we name it? They gave the job to the sports radio to name the team. So, to my delight, a week later, when Trash Pandas was the name they selected, I immediately thought, I got to get, I got to be a part of this. Like, I got to get to be a part of this. This is near my hometown, right? It's not the Huntsville Stars, because that's cliche and dumb. This is, we are the Trash Pandas, right? This is something to throw our weight around. There's going to be a lazy river around the stadium, which didn't happen. But I was a big fan at the time. That was a thought. I was like, man, yeah, where do I sign? And I began to get a little bit invested. I'll illustrate that. I went out and I bought something. I bought me a shirt. It had the trash pandas on it, right? Because, man, I was fired up about it. How cool is to have a mascot like the trash pandas? I mean, come on. Like, I know the whole origin of how it happened. I was listening to the sports. I was part of the process. Loved it. And then I took my kids to a game. And my fandom had to increase. Because my kids aren't going to go, Daddy, you know what? I understand that the money that you make is, is not an unlimited well of resources. And I will just be happy to go and attend the game with my father and make memories that way. <laughs> no. Where's the first place we went? The gift shop, right? Now, I'll be honest with you, right? So my investment went a little further, right? So, I mean, if I'm going to get my kids stuff, I got to get me stuff, right? So I had to get me a trucker hat, my fav one of my favorite hats. I love this hat, right? And you see me wear it out and about in Elmont. And then we get really dumb things for my kids, right? And I don't know why anybody would ever buy one of these, right? The giant foam finger, woo! This, let me just tell you, this does not, handle a whole lot we have like put these up on shelves never to be touched because if a weenie dog the size of our weenie dog can destroy one of these then anyone can destroy one of these all right much less a, a three-year-old or a six-year-old right you get what i'm saying so we had to buy the foam fingers and then they went with their pawpaw and they had to buy more hats and more foam fingers and they may have purchased the team i'm not sure like why 
Because it was exciting, right? There was some excitement to it. Now, I went, I made sure, guys, that I showed this fandom because it is fall in the South, all right? And so maybe we can all agree on the trash pandas. Now, if you're just an adamant fan of the Barons or the Chattanooga Lookouts, then there's the door. You can go, if I've offended you in any way. I was hoping this would be kind of a Switzerland for everybody, all right? So not getting in everybody's feelings about what happened or did not happen yesterday. But we become fans. Why? Because immediately I saw an opportunity to get something out of it. It was cool to take my kids to the Trash Pandas game. It's a cool thing to do, right? There was something to gain from having this so close to us. And so I got fired up about it and I became a fan of the Trash Pandas. Can I just tell you, I don't, I don't know that I could name a single player on their roster. But that didn't stop me from one of the obscure people I didn't know raising my phone finger when they hit a home run, right? Why? Because I was there. Now, do I ever check the score of any other game when I'm not there? No, right? Because I don't care. I got bigger fish to fry. I don't care if they lose every other game. I just want them to win the game that I come to, right? Y'all understand this, don't you? Why? Because we're fans. We get it. Jesus had developed a fan base. But what we see in Jesus is not even a... We, Jesus understood the necessity of the multitude so that he brought people in so that he could bring them to something more. Because you know what I also notice about sports teams and things like that when winning doesn't happen as often as it should? I love watching Major League Baseball and, and 150 plus games and you're like, you know... Come on now, 150, really? 150 games, like, you can't decide it before 150. Like 150, you have to have, have 150 games, okay, fine. Uh, but you look at the teams that start being less competitive as the year goes on, like they have less and less of a shot of making it to the playoffs. Guess what happens to their attendance? <whistles> Why? Because they're fans and it's not a good product and what they get isn't good enough to support what they're, what they're giving, right? And so it's all about what they can take, how they can be entertained. Jesus, there was some entertainment value to what Jesus was doing. But we'll find at the end of chapter 8 is Jesus wasn't content to leave it there because it's not always easy to be a follower of Jesus. It's easy to be a fan. It's easy to have a casual association. But what happens when it begins to cost us something? Let's look secondly at accusation. Let's look at the accusation. So here's my question. Here's my question for before we, before we make that transition. Have you, in your salvation, okay, have you made a decision to believe in Jesus? Or have you committed to following Jesus? Be very careful how you understand being, having an affinity for Jesus or an association with Jesus, being a fan of Jesus, and equate that to salvation. That is not what we see in the crowd. What we see in the crowd is not salvation. We see people just along for the ride. Five times, Jesus says in the Gospels, believe in me. Twenty times, he says, follow me. 
There's a place for the gathering. There's a place for the multitude. But it's because God is calling you to relationship in the crowd. Does that make sense? He is bringing you to himself. Because it's not always easy. And what you find when you follow Jesus is not everything is easy. So let's look at the accusation that was made against Christ. And if it was made against Christ, what did Jesus say to his disciples? If the world hates you, be cool with it because it hated me first. Know that it hated me first. You're not going to surprise me right? when you get rejected. You're not going to surprise me when you're not invited to the parties. You're not going to surprise me uh, when, when people laugh at you. That, those things aren't going to surprise me because they did it to me first. Listen to the accusations. Mark 3. Mark 3, verse 21. And when his family heard it, his family now, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Can you imagine your parents showing up to pull you off the stage because you were a lunatic? They, they thought you were a lunatic? And we don't know if they, if they really believed he was a lunatic, or he lost his mind, or they were just trying to protect him. What we do know is they were probably concerned about their family name, right? Lord, here goes Jesus again, like telling people to drink his blood and eat his flesh. Lord, here we go again, right? I'll, I'll never be able to show my face in the water cooler next week after this sermon, right? And so they run out and they pull him back and they say, hey, look, get away from the, like he's crazy. He's lost his mind. Don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. He's crazy. All right, he's crazy. Don't listen to him. They were concerned about their name. Maybe they were just trying to protect Jesus. Jesus, you've got some people that are, you're really ticking off. You need to be very, very careful. And, man, the best place for you is out of the public eye. But Jesus was called to the multitude. Jesus didn't care as much about his family name as he did about another name. He didn't live to make sure his family legacy stayed intact. His family business continued, right? He wasn't repping the Joseph Carpentry uh, school or something like that. He wasn't doing that. He wasn't wearing that t-shirt, right? He was repping another name, another family, a family not of this world. He wasn't concerned about his own safety. In fact, he'll tell us later, if you're going to follow me, then you've got to die. You've got to For all intents and purposes in your physical life, you have to give it up to follow me. It's certainly not about what you can gain. Being a fan is about what you can consume. Being a follower means we learn to commit. Because lies against Christ, they produced foes. Right in your notes. Lies against Christ produced foes. Listen to what they said in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of the demons. He has cast out demons. What are he saying? It's all a ruse, right? He's from the devil. He's a demon. He he's, he's, has demonic power. And he's casting out demons. The word Beelzebul there is synonymous with Satan. The word literally means the Lord, Baal, Zebul of flies, or Zebub is of flies. Zebul actually is of dung. 
So what they were saying was it was a way to slight Satan. Like Satan is the Lord of the flies. He is Lord of, the Lord of very insignificant things. He is the Lord of trash. He is the Lord of excrement. He is, you know, and so he, they, that was the term that they used. So they were hurling insults at Jesus saying not just he is possessed by Satan, but he's possessed by the Lord of the dung, the Lord of the flies. Like he is possessed by this insignificant thing and all that they're doing is trying to get you to subscribe. Trying to get you to be a part of this elaborate lie. I don't know why we feel like Jesus was somebody that brought peace and should bring peace to the multitude. The problem with the message of Jesus is though Jesus is the prince of peace, that peace didn't happen in the multitude. That peace happens with an individual. In fact, for the family, Jesus said, I'm bringing a sword. Jesus' own family was divided on who Jesus was. He was the son of God. Their mama was telling them stories of, of how the, the virgin, the, the, how she gave birth not knowing a man. She was, they were telling them stories about Gabriel coming to her in the night, giving stories about what happened in Luke 2, right? And they still disagreed. It's not found. Peace isn't found in the multitude. Peace is found in an individual's heart. And so here's my question to you. To gauge whether you're a fan or a follower, how much has your relationship with Christ cost you? Because a fan will quit. A fan will be obedient until it becomes difficult. Until it puts you as the odd man out in a group. And then... We just take off the hat for a little bit. We do whatever it is that the world dictates that we should do in that circumstance. Then we come, we wake up in the morning, especially when we have an extra hour of sleep, and we put back on the hat. And all of a sudden, we're Team Jesus again. This is the way fandom works. This is not the life of a committed follower. Let's look thirdly at Revelation. How does Jesus respond to this? Being casting out demons by Beelzebul. He gives them the truth. And the truth doesn't unify. The truth divides. The truth about Christ produces factions. There is no more polarizing figure in all the world than Jesus. In all of history than Jesus. What you decide, what you believe, and what you, uh, what you pursue about Jesus is the most divisive thing that has ever been in our, in our history. In the history of mankind. He produced factions. Listen to what Mark 3, 23 through 27 says. And he called to them, he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. What's he saying? He's saying, if I am of Satan, then you need to throw a party because the house of Satan is falling. It's over. 
There's no need for being religious. There's no need for any of this because the house of Satan is done. Listen to what he says. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. Right? I can't go into a strong man's home, someone stronger than me, someone bigger than me, someone better armed than me. I can't go into that home and expect to steal things from their home. That's going to end poorly for me. Unless he first binds the strong man. Unless he overpowers him. Unless that man is better armed, the criminal is better armed. Unless the person robbing the home is larger and more prepared, that man cannot plunder the house. But if he's stronger and if he binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. What is Jesus talking about? Who's the strong man? Satan. Saying the strong man is Satan and his kingdom, this demon-possessed man is his possession. And the only way that somebody could come in and steal one who is of the possession of the devil is if the one who does it is stronger than the devil. Do you know what Jesus is doing? This is the first time he actually commits. Because most of every other place, even when he's healing people, He's like, shh, don't tell nobody. Like, hey, I'm, I'm glad you can walk, and I'm glad you're running now, and I'm glad you're not paralyzed. I'm glad you don't have leprosy. Just don't tell nobody, all right? Almost like he was against the crowd. Almost like it, that was not his goal, was not to draw a big audience. But what does he tell them? Subtly, he tells them, my power comes from something far higher than the kingdom of darkness. He's claiming to be of the kingdom of light. He's claiming to be one with God. And so he, he, he explains this to them, right? He explains this to them and he, he tells them, and here's what happens, right? All the people go, wow, Jesus, you're right. Let's all passionately follow you with everything that we have. It's not what happens. You have half, or probably the great majority, they go, man, this dude is a lunatic, but he's a smart lunatic. Let's figure out how we can discredit him. He's wrong. I just don't know how he's wrong. Let's go. We can't accept that truth. There's got to be another reason. So they go hit the books to disprove all that Jesus said. When glaring evidence is right there that Jesus is who he says he is. But then there's some. Then there's some that are called to follow him. And so what is your response to Christ today? Here's what it can't be. It can't be fandom. You can't just be a fan of Jesus. Jesus wasn't content with people just being a fan of him. He kept doing things that would sabotage that. He kept putting people in places where if you were going to follow him, you were going to put your life at peril. So if I'm a fan, I don't want any part of that. Let me remove the hat for a minute. Let me hide the foam finger for a little bit until he does something a little more socially acceptable. He couldn't, you couldn't just play this middle road. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He's either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all 
in our lives. Either we understand that our lives are a sold-out, surrendered commitment to him, or we have settled for less than salvation. Because we can't have claim and association, this good old boy mentality of, I have an association with Jesus, it doesn't cut the mustard when it comes to judgment. Right? Being a, being a fan is not salvation. But Christ has called us to be a follower. Let's look finally at the invitation. Mark 8, 34 to 35. And calling the crowd to him. This is the last, this is before he makes the transition to focusing on his disciples. I would argue he is trimming the fat. He is bringing his disciples to him, right? And he says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, everybody around, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? He is eliminating the category of fan. If you are to follow me, if you want to be associated with me, here is what you must do. You must take up your cross. And that, in today's day, doesn't sound so bad. Because a cross is a decoration in our home, right? But to that audience, what they heard is take up your instrument of inhumane torture. Take up your complete and utter earthly humiliation. Take up your death penalty and deny yourself. You can't, you're not going to pick up your cross unless you denied yourself. There's no middle ground here. There's no way to live with your hands grasping the world and your hands grasping the cross. Why? Because by definition, you've died to it. There's not a middle ground to play. And this is the calling that he places to the multitudes. Calling everybody that he's accumulated for all of these, all of this time, for these eight chapters. Now let me tell you why you're here. If you want to come after me, I'm issuing a call. There's an invitation on the table for you. But here's what it requires. You must deny yourself. You must die to your pattern of living. You must die to your flesh. You must die to your sin. You must give up your plans and your dreams. And to remember that sacrifice, you must carry the death of your physical, what you desire in your physical life, you must carry it with you and follow me and let me define life for you. You see how divisive that is? See, that's not very appealing to the multitude. It's why at the end of Jesus' life, 120 people were all that he accumulated. 
less than in our in, were in attendance today at Lindsay Lane North was the sum total of Jesus' ministry. He had the multitudes, so much so that he was afraid he would be crushed. There were so many people. But then he started putting parameters on it. Then he started defining the relationship between him and his followers, and everybody realized that they were just fans. So who are you today? Can your life be defined as one of following and committing to follow Christ passionately with everything that you are? Are you still trying to play this impossible middle ground? Christ's call to obedience proves who are his followers. Christ's call to obedience proves who are his followers. Are you walking in obedience to him? Because my friend, if you're not, you may be claiming a salvation that you don't have. And I would so warn you against being a fan of Jesus and to surrender your life to him. It's not about hedging our bets. It's about totally surrendering. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If you're here today and you need to... You need to call it on your life, the direction of your life. It's rejecting rejecting or accepting. Jesus offers the invitation, but it is far a far cry from making you do either. You get the opportunity to choose. But he's either, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. This is the message that we hear in the multitude. Whoever would come after me, deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. So if you're here today, maybe it's time for you to die. Time for you to die to the ways and the patterns of this world that have ruled in your life for far too long. Maybe it's time for you to surrender to life that Christ has for you. Let him define and dictate life on his terms. Here's what I promise you. You will not be disappointed in that investment. He's come that you would have life and have life abundantly. And that's not just speaking about eternity. It's speaking about here on earth. So if that's you and you need to surrender, you need to, sure enough, Surrender to his lordship. I would encourage you to do that. Find me here at the front. Would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe God is calling you just as Jesus did to the multitude. Maybe in this crowd, in this multitude, Jesus is calling you to follow him. Pray that you would come if that's the case. Maybe you're here and maybe your life is divided. You know that you have a relationship with Christ. Man, you just, you just got your hand in a lot of things. You got, you're just easily distracted by things of this world. Maybe you just need to rededicate. And maybe you need to get your life right. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to take that first step of obedience. You know you got a relationship with Christ, but you need to be baptized. And we'd love to talk to you about that. But whatever, whatever business you need to do, maybe you just need to come to this altar. Maybe you just need to lay some things down. Right? That's, that's the posture right? Paul says, I die daily. So maybe there's just things that you need to die to today. Just come and do that here at the altar. Whatever it is that 
you feel the Lord impressing on your heart to do, I pray that you would respond in obedience to him, whatever that looks like. Father, have your will and way in this time of invitation. You are calling some out of the multitude today. And Father, I pray that we would respond to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you're going to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing? Would you come? You need to make a decision to follow Christ. Would you do it today? Whatever that means and whatever that looks like, no turning back.